What's up, y'all? I'm Deeg on the Deeg Thoughts Podcast. Here today, thinking about violence, nostalgia, and the quest for identity. All very important ideas that pinged off my brain while I was zoning out playing Valheim the other night. I was doing as you do, playing Valheim, with a, playing with a friend who logged off responsibly at a responsible hour, and I irresponsibly decided not to. So I did what you do when you're an irresponsible gamer playing a video game late at night, and I loaded up YouTube on my side screen in order to, you know, get that touch of uh, human connection, which I hope some of y'all are doing right now. And I turn on this awesome interview with Marshall McLuhan. Um, for those of y'all who don't know, Mar Marshall McLuhan is a was a media philosopher who famously coined the term the medium is the message, which is an aphorism that can be sort of understood as an argument that context is more meaningful than content when you're consuming media. Interesting idea. Um, and he talked about a lot of things, but a few things I zeroed in on as being particularly relevant to gamers, which is fascinating because McLuhan passed I think back in the 90s, this dude was not around for the modern era of live services turned on data-driven gaming that we have today. But these ideas, I think, are all highly relevant to the world that worlds that we all inhabit together. And I wanted to share some thoughts and some uh, from myself and from McLuhan. So let's jump right into that. Okay. Point the first, data and surveillance. Let's hear from McLuhan. Investigations now of the, the CIA and the FBI and even our own, God forbid, RCMP, is this, has this anything to do with the electronic well, age? Well, yes, because it, we now have the means to keep everybody under surveillance. In any, no matter what part of the world they're in, we can put uh, them under surveillance. It has become one of the main occupations of mankind, just watching other people and keeping a record of their goings-on. This is the way most businesses are run. Every business has a huge espionage, espionage sector. And uh, the, uh, this is called uh, public relations, and it's called uh, <laughs> audience research. <laughs> and uh, this is uh, around the clock. And uh, th this has become the main business of mankind, just watching the other guy. And invading privacy. Invading privacy, in fact, just ignoring it. It's, it's, uh, everybody has become porous. They, they got, they got the, light, the light and the, and the messages go right through us. As okay, so that's McLuhan, if y'all haven't heard from him before. Very sort of pseudo-cryptic, kind of bang, bang, bang. I'm going to break down a couple of things he just said. Um... It's become one of the main occupations of humankind, just watching other people and keeping a record of their goings-on. This was, I think, a pretty interesting and, not, and, and important thing for him to suggest when he did this. I'm fairly certain this was recorded in the 60s or 70s, y'all. This is like, this is almost a, this is almost a half century old. Just even idea how ahead of his time McLuhan was. And the first point I want to raise here is talking about the way that decisions are made by publishers and studios with regard to our lovely gaming worlds. 
all of us here on Twitch and on YouTube kind of love this idea that the things that we say matter and have a potential to impact the way that games are made. I did a great talk a few months ago called 8025 that I really recommend you watch if you believe that what's said on Twitch and YouTube matters. Because what, what that talk kind of highlights is the reality that the people, the 80% of people who engage with these online worlds and experiences never look to Twitch or YouTube or anywhere else other than the experience itself. And that studios and publishers are chasing that 80% much, much more, um, with a lot more interest and vigor than the 20% of us who are watching YouTube and Twitch and going to Reddit in places like this, and the 5% of us who are actually saying what we think. So if that's the case, what that means is the way that game studios and publishers are getting signal back from people playing the game is not from what we say, it's from what people are doing in game. It's from the data points, from the literal surveillance that studios and publishers have of people playing their games. Okay? Hopefully this is something that we all know and understand, and all I've done is re-emphasize how important it is via 8025. Don't forget that idea. And of course, there's social media, right? Not only are our companies watching us, but we're all watching each other. This isn't just something done by nefarious people trying to make a buck. This is done by everybody in a quest for identity. Okay. Next. Avatars. <laughs> Everyone's favorite thing to obsess over in these online virtual worlds. I certainly have done it. I'm sure you have. We're all guilty of this, right? It's kind of the, one of the most fun things when you start a new experience. Oh, who am I going to be? What am I going to look like? What? How shall I form my identity? Let's see what McLuhan has to say. Wait, at this moment, right? Uh, we are on the air, and right. we at, on the air we do not have any physical body. When you're on the telephone or on radio or on TV, you don't have a physical body. You're just an image on the air. When you don't have a physical body, you're a discarnate being. You have a very different relation to the world around you. And this, I think, has been one of the big effects of the Electric Age. It has deprived people, really, of their private identity. So that's what this is doing to me? Yes. Everybody uh, tends to merge his identity with other people at the speed of light. It's called being mass man. It began say, quite a long time ago. Everyone tends to merge their identity at the speed of light. Hot damn, that's a good one. That's a good one to have printed out and put somewhere. If you look at Twitter and Facebook, I think this is incredibly obvious, but it happens in our gaming communities too, right? So, yes, I'm drawing a connection between making an online avatar, gaming avatar, and what he talked about as a discarnate being. Being, uh, uh, existing without having a body. On the air, we have, we have no physical body. We're just an image on the air. When you don't have a physical body, you are a discarnate being. You have a different relationship to the world around you. It has deprived people of their private identity. So we're continuing to talk about identity, especially 
the depriving of identity. This is one of McLuhan's central kind of interests in his overall philosophy and commentary. Um, and we're going to be drilling into it even harder with the next point. So let's proceed with that. All right. Next, we're going to talk about actual games. And especially some of McLuhan's comments on sports. And we're using those co comments in order to compare those things to uh, those same ideas in the worlds of games. Let's do it. New technology, you say, is a revolutionizing agent. Yes, it creates new situations to which people have very little time to adjust. They become alienated from themselves very quickly. And then they seek all sorts of bizarre outlets. Bizarre outlets. To establish some sort of identity. Oof. Uh, by put-ons. Hmm. Show business has become one way of establishing... Put-ons? Like cosmetics? ...establishing identity by just put-ons. <laughs> and uh, without the put-on, you're nobody. And so people are learning show business as an ordinary daily way of survival. It's called role-playing. Social media influencers? Role-playing has become the normal mode of survival in the business world. Jobs have disappeared, as it were, but role-playing has come in on a huge scale. And it's much more flexible than job-holding. And uh, jobs are rather static, repetitive things, whereas role-playing is very flexible. You can play many roles, but you can only have one job at a time. You can play many roles. Role-playing has become the normal mode of survival within the business world. How come you haven't heard of McLuhan before, Henry? That's exactly the same thing I was asking myself when I stumbled into this guy. It's crazy-making how relevant some of this stuff is now what he just said i think really spoke for itself i don't feel the need to add a layer of commentary to it but what i am going to do is expand on something that he did say specifically about the business world the business world what does he mean by the business world why is it important to link role-playing with the business world and normal survival um i'm actually going to call back to another talk of his and let him explain himself there. In terms of the uh, figure ground thesis that you put forward in City as Classroom, Professor, in what way would the message uh, that you've given us tonight be different if this meeting, instead of being here in the Sydney Hilton Hotel, were, say, in the centre of the Sydney Cricket Ground? Well. Cricket is a very organized form of violence. <laughs> like that one. I, I would insist on studying the game of cricket as a manifestation of the controlled forms of violence in the community. Uh, I would insist on examining cricket as a way of representing accepted forms of violence in the business community. Is that what he said? Something like that. He's going to say it again, but I wanted to pause because it's so interesting. Baseball or football, any kind of sport, is a dramatization of the typical and accepted forms of violence in the business community. 
dramatization. And so you can learn an enormous amount about the business community by studying the rules and procedures in cricket or baseball or golf, as far as that goes. The, these are, all these games are huge uh, ways of discovering, dramatizing what the society you're in is all about. By the way, without an audience, uh, these games would have no meaning at all. They have to be played in front of a public in order to acquire their meaning. Mm. A baseball game without an audience would be a rehearsal only, a practice. The game requires a public, and the public has to resemble a whole cross-section of the community. I'm very interested in games as dramatizings of violent behavior, under control. Dramatizations of violent behavior under control in games as a representation of what's accepted within the business community and perhaps within the wider world. Crazy, right? So a few comments. Um, first off, I just love that quote that cricket's a very organized form of violence. It's good shit. Um, let's talk about the public audience thing. What, why is McLuhan suggesting that a public audience is important? Um, my interpretation of this is what he's describing is how the, the, the salience of a game can be understood by the number of people who are interested in it. And that if a game does not have a lot of interest, a lot of, a lot of an audience, a lot of people observing it, in more traditional sports, like baseball, cricket, like he was describing, um, there's a very, it, it's, it's for, for most people, the way you participate in those sports is not by getting on the field. It's by watching on the TV. It's by hearing it on the radio, watching a stream, or going to a game. Most people aren't actually playing it. With video games, I think it's a little bit different. I'm going to talk about games in a minute, but... This is all about video games. Just keep that in mind. Um, and then he goes on to describe how it's important to be a, a good cross-section of the community. In other words, it's important that an audience for a game, as a symbol of accepted vi violence within the business community, be represented, representative of the broader community. This makes sense, too. Think about your favorite game that you wish more people played, right? that you wish was more relevant to the business community in the broader world. We all have those. I know I certainly do. Um, now let's make a few kind of extrapolations here um, and interpretations. So if we think about a sport being an organized form of violence and what is accepted within the business community, let's think about what some, what some behaviors within these sports games um, are accepted or whether they are or not or how that's changed and how that symbolizes a broader principle in the business world. I'll start with baseball, the one I know best. I'm just going to try to zip through this. Steroids. Y'all remember steroids in baseball? If you don't pay attention or weren't around or didn't give a shit, back in the 90s, in the Bud Selig era of Major League Baseball, steroids ran rampant throughout the game. The, 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 the comment you have from people is everyone was doing it. Look at Mark McGuire, look at Barry Bonds, maybe Sammy Sosa, I don't know, Roger Clemens, uh, Alex Rodriguez. So many of the game's most impressive players from that era all abused steroids. And, and if you were a player in that era, you were in a tough position. Either you abuse steroids or you risk falling behind the, your teammates and opponents who were using it. 
So, um, but over time, steroids and um, uh, performance-enhancing drug, PED use, has been cracked down on in the game. It's the way the game has matured. So that is reflective of something that happens in the business community. Rules being sort of flexed and broken until it gets to a point where those where it's broadly criticized outside of the business itself. And then the business has to crack down. Can you think of a gaming business who got away with something for a while and now is having to crack down? I bet you can. Uh, another thing for baseball, spider tack, very similar. This is a very current uh, kind of controversy that just happened in the 2021 baseball season where um, with the onset of, of advanced statistics, a bunch of people in baseball suddenly figured out that the best way to make your pitches harder to hit uh, wasn't to throw your pitches harder, it was to spin your pitches faster. Baseball has a lot of different kinds of pitches. There's the four-seam fastball, the two-seam fastball, split-finger, curveball, um, change-up, slider, um, all kinds of pitches. And these pitches are characterized by how they spin when they leave the pitcher's hand. If you spin something faster, it moves more. If it moves more, it's harder to hit. And so how do you improve your spin? Well, one of the best ways to do that is to increase the friction between your hand and the ball using some kind of a foreign substance. Something that apparently became popular or at least controversial this year was something called spider tack. And the game cracked down on it once it started getting into the broader, the broader sports press and a bigger, it became a bigger issue within the game. And uh, there's actually one pitcher who had to change the way that he threw as a result of not having access to this stuff anymore to comply with the rules now that they were being cracked down on and actually injured himself as a result. Tyler Glass now is his name. But again, a rule that was being broken by everybody until it got to be too big of a problem and then was cracked down. Another baseball example of a kind of a poor etiquette, uh, swinging on, on a 3-0 count. Uh, if you know baseball, you know what that means, and if you don't, it's going to take too long to explain. You're going to take my word for it. Um, another thing that's kind of, that was kind of frowned upon in the game like a decade ago, two decades ago, but now is more accepted, is when players show off when they hit a home run. Used to be, you hit a home run, put your head down, try to run the bases. Now you see players hitting a home run and like flipping their bat and making signs and like vamping to their dugout with their, their friendly players, pointing to the stands. That kind of showboating didn't used to be appreciated, but now that kind of identity forging by flaunting yourself is more accepted. You can think of probably analogs between the sport and how the game is played and how business is done and how the world conducts itself there. Um, so that's baseball, but we're not here to talk about sports. What about video games? All right, I'm going to use Planetside 2 as a sort of example of how, um, how it's a dramatization of typical and accepted forms of violence within the business community and how some of the behaviors there are reflective of that. Um, so uh, one thing that Planetside 2 players, Planetside 2, for those who don't know, is a massively multiplayer online first-person shooter. It's a big PvP sandbox with a thousand players to split between three factions on a continent where you fight for territory. The, the faction that wins the most territory wins. 
You get in planes, tanks, fight on the ground, control capture points, etc. That's the game. If you played Battlefield, it's like Battlefield times 50, something like that. And um, one of the things players do within Planetside 2 to gain advantage is they put on Potato Mode. <laughs> well, there is no button for Potato Mode in the game. Potato Mode is actually a way of configuring your game to, com to completely uh, to maximize your performance, your frames per second within the game, how fast the game runs, and minimize the amount of visual confusion and noise within the game. This makes your game look ugly, like a potato, hence potato mode. But it gives you an advantage on the on the field. And uh, it, for some, this is considered a little bit of a controversy. It's kind of considered like not really playing the game in the same spirit as everyone else. Perhaps a slightly a slight unfair advantage. But for most people who play who care about performance, they play this way. This is kind of like if you're a salesperson. Uh, trying to sell to every single person who you meet rather than only trying to sell to people who actually need the product that, you, that you're selling. Something like that. Stream sniping. Something that's considered very, very bad etiquette in gaming. Uh, spawn camping. Another one. Bad etiquette. V6ing. In Planetside, this is the, the equivalent of teabagging. It's insulting your enemy after you kill them. Um, what do all of these things say about the business community? It's all about ethics and how we conduct ourselves when we're interacting and contending with the world. Anyway, enough on that. Let's talk about violence. Or rather, let's let Marshall talk about it. But in Quebec, for example, they dis define it as the, the quest for identity. Yes, all forms of violence are a quest for identity. When you live out on the frontier, you have no identity. You're a nobody. Therefore, you get very tough. You have to prove that you are somebody. And so you become very violent. And so identity is always accompanied by violence. This uh, it seems paradoxical to you? that uh, ordinary, ordinary people uh, find the need for violence as they lose their identities. Mm. So it's only the threat to people's identity that makes them violence. Terrorists, hijackers, these are people minus identity. They are determined to make it somehow, to get coverage, to get noticed. And Can you think of a way that people use violence to form their identity within video games? Bet you you can. All forms of violence are a quest for identity, according to McLuhan. This is a mind-blowing idea. He brings up the example of living on the frontier as an example of someone who's living apart from people, right? They don't have a lot of people around to help their identity form in contrast to. So they get very tough because they have, they've, it's harder to form an identity when you're not surrounded by people. And on the converse, people who live surrounded by a lot of people tend to get very nice, nonviolent. Think about cities versus living on the frontier. Threat to identity is what drives violence. In the real world, this could be something like rioters, terrorists, school shooters, street fights. In the gaming world, forms of violence that can be committed in a sense for identity when you feel like your identity is being threatened and you're trying to find a way to make a name for yourself, 
courses, but getting very, very good at a PvP game, dominating your competition, being the best, getting good, right? That's a legit way to form an identity via violence in games. And it's the promise that a lot of these games sell you. Think of any game that has combat, especially PvP combat. That game is selling you a promise of identity forged through violence. And this can turn sour, right? This can turn sour. People hacking in order to take out their feelings about a, on a game or a community. Griefers, people who are somehow abusing game mechanics to make a particularly unpleasant experience for someone else. Just, just to vicariously experience the other person's misery. Um... I also worked on spawn campers here. Talked about that before. It's a way of forging your identity through violence, through hurting other people, either through means that are that are deemed legitimate by the by the world now it's presented, or by those deemed illegitimate, either by through a sort of a community ethic or by a literal rule breaking. But McLuhan is not done on violence. Let us continue violence is a kind of self-expression and uh, so that um, the uh, quest for identity uh, the uh, person who is struggling to find out who am I uh, by all sorts of maladjustments all sorts of quarrels all sorts of encounters uh, such a person is a, a social nuisance, of course. <laughs> but uh, quest, the quest for identity goes along with this bumping into other people in order to get to find out who, who am I, how much power can I exert, how much identity do, can I discover that I possess by simply banging into other people. And, uh, by simply banging into other people. Another way to look at this could be simply getting out there and experiencing the world. Interesting language, right? Uh, so that's what I had in mind when I said that the quest for identity is always a violent quest. It's a series of adventures and encounters that create all sorts of disturbance. A series of adventures and encounters that create all sorts of disturbance. Does that not sound like a video game? Ugh. I suppose I don't think you have to go very far in literature, for examples, of it. I suppose Don Quixote uh, is a, a great popular hero, and Flash Gordon, and uh, Superman. But we're now beginning to get a, I'm thinking now of this new yeah. show, the Star War, that is uh, the new uh, Hollywood thing Star that is War. based on Flash Gordon comics. Um, the bionic man, bionic woman, these are vicarious forms of violence in which young people are trying to discover, who am I? Mm -hmm. I once asked to my granddaughter, or, uh, one of our granddaughters, who was then six, what do you want to be when you grow up? And she said instantly, bionic woman. <laughs> um, this is a kind of violence that permits uh, one to discover who you are. Um, I was using violence in a rather large sense of simply encounter, 
abrasive encounters. Yes. Boy, that's a big one. I love that little bit at the back about bionic woman and asking his granddaughter what she wanted to be and how the superheroes allow us to channel a sort of violence that permit us to discover who we are. This was something that he said in 1977. 44 years ago. Today, in 2021, we are surrounded by superheroes, aren't we? Genre fiction has become dom a dominant force in entertainment, both on the big screen, on the small screen, and the characters we inhabit in video games. Power fantasy, identity formation, a series of adventures and encounters that create all sorts of disturbances. Beautiful, beautiful, McLuhan. And if I can add a little bit of Deeg sprinkling on top of all this talk about violence, I think one way to think about identity formation via violence, via um, uh, getting into abrasive experiences where you encounter other people, is to think about it as forming your identity as a difference between yourself and others. It's a sort of narrowing of identity by separating yourself from other people, which is an important contrast to the next point we're about to discuss, which is nostalgia. That's right, boys and girls. Here we go. By the way, one of the big marks of the loss of identity is nostalgia. And so revivals on all hands in every, in every phase of life today. Revivals of clothing, of dances, of music, of shows, of everything. We live by the revival. It tells us who we are. Or the revival, the nostalgia, tells us who we are. He says a bit more about this in another clip. Would the people right at the back please come to that centre microphone? In the meantime, over here, yes. Quite some time ago you said that life was very much like uh, driving a car, but only being able to look into the rear vision mirror. After you've gone, who's going to drive the bus? <laughs> I made a strange discovery about the rearview mirror, having accused uh, a lot of people of living in the rearview mirror and having meant by that uh, that they were out of date, that they were 19th century minds. I then took another look into the rearview mirror on my own. I was not criticized. I did this on my own. And I discovered somewhat to my surprise, that when you look in the rearview mirror, you do not see what has gone past. You see what is coming. And the rearview mirror is the foreseeable future. It is not the past at all. The title, the phrase rearview mirror, appears to distort the situation. 
Most people think of it instinctively from the sound of the phrase, it must be the past. The, in terms of media, of course, the thing that is uh, occupying the foreground in terms of the rearview mirror is nostalgia. Nostalgia is the name of the game in every, in every part of our world today, including the program Roots. But nostalgia is not, well, it's a kind of rearview mirror if you like, but it's also the shape of things to come. Uh, when people have been stripped off their private identities, they develop huge nostalgia. There that idea is again, a response to loss of identity. So we just talked about violence being a response to the threat of identity loss. And now he's also proposing that nostalgia can also be a response to loss of identity. Interesting. And nostalgia for the genes and, and uh, Levi's off the young today are nostalgia for granddad's overalls. <laughs> His work clothes now become the latest costume. Um, but this is a, a rather mysterious thing. It, the costumes worn by the young, the fashionable costumes, are really very old hat and uh, nostalgic. And uh, Someone called it uh, uh, International Motley. That uh, the costumes worn by the young today are a kind of international motley or clown costume. Okay. I'm just going to fill up some airspace right here because he's about to take off on a rocket ship with this idea. Let's briefly review nostalgia response to loss of identity that the grandpa's work clothes of the past are the costume of the young. And he talked about this costume of young people as a way to form identity via nostalgia as a, uh, a sort of clown costume, a motley. We good? Feeling good? All right, here we go. And uh, paradoxically, the clown is a person with a grievance. His role in medieval society was to be the voice of grievance. The clown's job was to tell the emperor or tell the, the royalty exactly what was wrong with the society. He often lost his head in the process. But the, the clown, the international motley of our time, the clown is trying to tell us his grievance. The beards and the hairdos and the costumes of the young are a manifestation of grievance and anger. You've heard about the streakers, a kind of manifestation of anger about the lack of jobs and goals in our world. In America, we call them passing fannies, but the, <laughs> I understand it has a different meaning here. <laughs> It's more restrictive, yes. Yes. <clears throat> the clown's job to tell the emperor what is wrong with his society, to communicate his grievance. Is nostalgia about grief? How does this relate back to gaming? Well, 
I kind of characterized a few moments ago that extending kind of McLuhan's comments about violence, I sort of see violence as a response to loss of identity, as a sort of narrowing of identity to separate ourselves from others, distinguish ourselves, categorize me, not me, not me, not me. Whereas I think nostalgia is more of a diluting of our identity. Not to separate from others, but to connect with others. It's a way of sort of being the person we see, being everyone. If you're watching me, there's a good chance that there's a tiny part of your identity where I live, and now where perhaps Marshall lives. The clown's job is to tell the emperor what is wrong with his society and his grievance. What grievances could be getting expressed by the nostalgia peddled to us through video games? That's a tough one. Think about the extremely exhaustingly common trope of fantasy worlds and games. Humans, dwarves, elves. What is this a grievance of? Why are people nostalgic for this? Is it perhaps grief about the way we're all separated? About the way we treat our fellow man who doesn't look or sound or talk like us? Man and woman. Perhaps. How about the daily quests that we all do within these games that connect us to the world that we co-inhabit? and give us easy gains so we don't have to concern ourselves over much with the pursuit of material wealth in order to survive in these worlds. The pursuit of wealth in these worlds oftentimes is quite optional, not required. And these daily quests are sort of a grievance against jobs then, aren't they? Against the nature of work and labor. I gotta think a lot harder about this one, but I'm pretty sure nostalgia has something to do with a response to identity loss via the diluting of identity to connect with others. That's what it feels like to me. Some conclusions. We talked about identity loss, McLuhan, the formidable McLuhan, and violence and nostalgia. I think when you combine the experiences of violence and nostalgia in the same kind of package with, like, in a video game, it's kind of like combining sugar and salt. What you have is the creation of a hyper- palatable experience. And yes, I'm showing fast food here for a reason. Hyperpalatable doesn't necessarily mean it's good for us, does it? Now, I am not going to go so far as to make the argument that video games are bad for us. Quite clearly, they can be. But just like with food, video games are quite clearly an expression of something within ourselves.
Games present a hyper-palatable combination of violence and nostalgia that permit us to carry out identity formation within these worlds. What do you think of that idea? Am I onto something? You know, I very well could be full of it. But this idea really inspired me. It really plugged in a lot of holes in the last two decades of my experience playing video games and my frustration and inability to get what I wanted out of them. It's just something to think about. And definitely argue with me about, please. Here's another shot of McLuhan sitting in a library. Now, here's some um, kind of meta commentary about McLuhan himself. I didn't want to put this at the front because I didn't want it to be a distraction. Um, I read a great uh, sort of paper about McLuhan by um, a communications professor named James C. Morrison, Jr. Um, at the time he wrote this, he was working at MIT. And in, his, in this paper, which I'll include in the description so you can read it yourself if you're interested, he referred to McLuhan as a technological environmentalist. Besides being a lot of syllables, that kind of conveys a lot of meaning, doesn't it? Here's the quote from McLuhan that he uh, included as a sort of um, a prologue to his uh, paper. McLuhan, 1966. I am resolutely opposed to all innovation, all change, but I am determined to understand what's happening. Because I don't choose to just sit and let the juggernaut roll over me. Many people seem to think that if you talk about something recent, you're in favor of it. The exact opposite is true in my case. Anything I talk about is almost certainly something I'm resolutely against. And it seems to me the best way to oppose it is to understand it. And then you know where to turn off the buttons. If you consume more of McLuhan's work and more of the interview that I'm interviews that I'm riffing from here, one of the things that you'll may stitch together is that he is trying to stand up technology and the responses to it and the behaviors it drives as sort of a retreat from a literate mode of creating identity. Literally reading the written word. And it's no mistake that he's pictured here in a sort of library among books. McLuhan is a partisan for literacy and literate identity formation. Dude loves books. The question, though, is he was in a, living in a time where TV was taking over, and he wanted to understand it because he didn't like what TV was doing. He described it as driving nostalgia, driving violence. There's other talks where he talks about television and radio and these forces actually driving a sort of regression from a first world into more of a third world mode of interacting. I'm not sure I agree with this notion, but it is interesting. But if we accept the idea that the way that identity was formed by at least people in the first world, let's say, this might be a little bit of an elitist point of view of Marshall's. I don't know. The identity could be formed via literacy. And as TV consumption goes up, as internet consumption goes up, as Facebook and Twitter and YouTube and Twitch and whatever comes next, 
people are forming their identities in these other kinds of ways. Is there actually a change happening? McLuhan, I think, would say yes, and this is kind of his central point. And if he's right, the question kind of that it prompts is, what does a post-literate pursuit of identity look like? He's advocating for a sort of pursuit of identity via reading, comprehension, a very left-brain focus, which is interesting because he's a very right-brain kind of dude. So it makes him sound so cryptic, but so right at the same time. I don't know what that looks like. But I'm going to try to find out. And I have a sense it might start with sitting down to have conversations just like these. And that's McLuhan, ladies and gentlemen. I got a little bit more planned, but I'm going to take a short break here. We'll all be some anthropomorphic avatars in 10 years. I think a lot of people would welcome that, Henry. Producer, it's because the reality of life... I'm oh, sorry, Kai said... The reality of life doesn't match up to what we were promised as a child. Daily quests provide fair and consistent income for the time spent at working, in contrast to real-life work. Yeah, I think there's truth in that. I think there's truth in that. Uh, another way you can... I, I think another way to, to interpret... Um, McLuhan's comments about nostalgia. You, you remember he mentioned um, that genes worn by the youth are a sort of uh, positive recollection of grandpa's work clothes? That kind of suggests that nostalgia is a recollection of a childlike point of view. And perhaps when you're a child, recollection of not having to work in order to live is that kind of nostalgia. Maybe that's it. And nostalgia is a word I'm working very hard to define. Because I think it's very important. And I, I think it has had a dominating force on my life the last 20 years that I was not aware of. And much like McLuhan, I'm determined to understand it. Ground game. You've got limited time these days. You don't touch the quest and planet side too because your time is valuable and you'd rather farm as much as possible. But you do have characters based upon themes or memes. Yep. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting, right? Watching the way people name themselves in online worlds. This is one of my favorite things to do when I'm playing these games, is look at the names. I kind of rate, rate I had this like insane notion to rate people's names on like a one to 10 scale. I don't know why, but I inherently find some names in online worlds to be more satisfying. And it's not always for the same reason. Sometimes a very satisfying name could be like a really appropriate commentary on the metagame, right? Um, one of the people who I, I've always respected in the Planet Side 2 scene is a guy um, who some of y'all will know as IV6 Bolters. His literal identity was that he shit talks people who snipe in Planet Side 2. That's an identity formation. I also really like people, people who put efforts to make their name something that would fit in the universe, a little more role play. You know, we talk about role-playing higher up in the conversation. I tend to like that, too. Just here for Orion. Yep, another comment on the metagame. I think that as a, a community matures, those kinds of ways to form identity become more and more um, preferential because people kind of plumb the depths of what's available within the, the world space. And, and they end up having to refer back to the community in order to continue distinguishing themselves from others.
Vortex Hayes, just studying and listening in. Thanks for being such a great person, Deke. Oh, that's a very kind thing to say. I'm not sure if I'm a great person, but I sure will try to be. Thank you. Henry says, will all be some anthropomorphic? Oh, I already read that one. Yeah. Yeah, okay. We're caught up. Yeah. Okay. Let's roll into some news. Something a little new we're going to try in the podcast. Dee -dee 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 -dee. Okay. This isn't going to be all the news. This is just going to be stuff that I've been kind of interested in. In the last, you know, since the last time we talked, which is two weeks ago now. Um, so yeah, I was out sick last week, basically. Um, so we missed a week. But uh, some cool stuff that's been going on in the gaming world that I've been kind of involved in. Uh, Guild Wars 2 is having a big buzzing time right now um, where they're unveiling the new uh, kind of prestige classes, the elite specs that they're going to be introducing in the end of Dragon's expansion coming out in February 2022. Very exciting for the existing community, generating a ton of content. Um, I'm mostly kind of hanging back from it because um, I don't want to overcommit my hype to uh, an experience that I'm, I'm sure to enjoy, but that I want to enjoy for what it is, not for what I hoped it could be. Um, they just, they just unveiled like uh, the new Warrior Elite spec. And I've been looking forward to this for a while because my main is a warrior in Guild Wars 2. It's called the Blade Sworn, which I'm not so sure about. Look this up if you're curious, but the Blade Sworn is sort of like a uh, like anime-themed, like kind of fall back and charge up your attack for 10 seconds, then do a massive strike. Um, I don't know what I think about it, but... Uh, it's there. I'm going to be playing it this week, actually, which kind of rolls right into the next thing about Guild Wars 2 I wanted to say is there's a whole bunch of betas going on with Guild Wars 2. It's one of the coolest things happening in this scene right now. Uh, a big change from the way Guild Wars 2 interacted with this community, um, you know, uh, just a year or two ago. And uh, I'll be playing the new upcoming beta to test out the DirectX 11 functionality to see if it improves the way the game runs. I'm going to be trying out the new Warrior Elite spec. There's also new Elite specs for the Revenant and um, what's the other one? Elementalist. And um, I actually had a chance to talk about uh, some, of the, some of the Elite specs and a few other things, including the new fishing and boating features of End of Dragons on uh, Jebro's Guild Wars 2 podcast. That was um, uh, came out on YouTube about a week ago. So that's the Lightbringers. If you're curious about hearing me on the Lightbringers podcast, with Jebro, Kroof, and uh, World of Enders, uh, aka Boots. Um, I'll put a link to that here in the description. Um, very Guild Wars 2 if that's your thing. So, the other thing that's been going on in kind of my overall sphere of interest uh, is the Planet Site 2 new player experience. It finally dropped. Um, I have not really had a chance to get my hands on it very much. Um, I'm unfortunately limited by the bounds of time and space as much as I'd like to dilate it at times. But the new player experience brought a bunch of changes to it that are targeted towards, obviously, new players. Um, they revamped and put in a new, more participatory tutorial that looks like it does better things, although I've heard a lot of kind of cynical dismissal of it by the veteran community who it's not really for. Um, I'm going to try that and give my own, render my own opinion on it at some point, but not trying to make time for it. Uh, they changed the default loadouts of a lot of the uh, the classes within the game to present more 
applicable options to fight some of the more uh, shitty things in the game, namely anti-air if you're a ground unit. So that that seems good. Um, there also were a handful of changes to implants and suit slots in the game. Uh, Nano Weave in in the community, there's a, there was a huge discussion in the last few weeks and months about finally nerfing Nano Weave, the suit slot to end all suit slots. It gave 20% small arms resistance and is the only thing that makes sense to take whenever you're in an infantry fight, which is most fighting within the game for most people. And um, uh, the big upheaval about Nano Weave is rather than just remove it from the game or nerf it down to a lower percentage, uh, speed penalty was added. And a lot of people are pretty unsatisfied with that outcome. Um, I'm not so sure that it's not going to do exactly what lead designer Rel says it's going to do, which is to reduce its overall usage and shake up the suit slot meta, but I don't know. Um, it's one of the most divisive things I've actually read about within the engaged community. It's kind of been a little bit surprising to me, but I'm going to watch to see how that unfolds over time. Other planet side stuff, um, apparently one of the coolest things about the new player experience patch is the, the redeploy change. So, um, Here's a scenario. Let's say you're a new player in Planet Side 2. You're getting into a fight. You're out in the world. When you die, what happens is a little button comes up. It says respawn. If the last place that you spawned is still available, like a Sunderer or a base spawn, you'll respawn at the same location. This is a great experience if you're a new player. You don't have to think too hard about where to go. Just come back to the same place I came back from last time, which is uh, something that happens in, in, in any shooter you play where there's respawning. But if your last spawn was the Sunderer and the Sunderer got destroyed since the last time you died, it used to be that that button would just put you at a random nearby spawn. And you'd be like, what? Where am I? Where'd the fight go? What's going on? Why am I not in the action anymore? This has been changed so that when your spawn point goes away and you hit that button, it brings up the map and forces you to choose a new spawn. Very small, but very, I think, important change if you're a new player. I like that a lot. Um, it's going to train people to engage with the map more intelligently and decide where to go, which people need because Planet is a hard game to, to navigate around. Uh, the last comment I'll make about the uh, new player experience before I read some of the comments here on stream is that it landed earlier than I expected. I was expecting this to come out a little later in the year, based on the velocity that we've seen from the, the RPG team. And it came out earlier, which is kind of interesting. Um, it's making me wonder what else is coming for Planet Side this year. A year ago, almost, um, maybe like nine or 10 months ago, on the uh, end of the year stream, one of the things that was promised for 2021 for Planet Side 2 was a new content. We've heard nothing about this. Will we get a new continent in Planet Side 2 before the end of 2021? I did a talk a little while ago about the new player experience and how my wish for it was to see ways to play Planet Side in a smaller, more confined way. Smaller fights, smaller equipment selections, give players a way to engage with the, the experience of Planet Side in a way that's a little narrowed down, with a little less chaos in it. I wonder if we'll get something like this. I wonder if someone's listening over at RPG. 
Um, speaking of small continents, one of the things in the, in the new player experience I think that was also added, and y'all can correct me if I'm wrong here, was Cold Tier. The original small continent for Planet Side 2 was added back into the rotation for low times, which seems like a good thing. But um, I'll be honest with y'all, I'm probably not going to be able to make time to play Planet Side the next little bit because New World's popping off next week. But I am always staying tuned into that gaming community that I love. Okay. Um, I promised this news thing would be snappy. So I got one, one more news thing to talk about. And that is the New York Yankees. Uh, for those of you who don't know, my original nerdy hobby back before gaming and before computers was baseball. And I grew up on the East Coast in Yankees land. So that's why I'm a Yankees fan. Um, not for any other reasons. I was, believe me, I was way too young to know a high budget team from a low budget team. And uh, I've, for some reason that I didn't really understand, been kind of stumbling back into following baseball after basically losing touch with it for 20 years. My, my family actually moved in the late 90s from New England down to, uh, down to the southeast of the United States in South Carolina. And I had no more way to watch Yankees games anymore. So I was like, I can't watch games. Like, I can't follow the sport. And I just fucked off and did other things. You know, I got addicted to video games. I played... Um, you know, started this whole crazy journey. But I, maybe it's because I'm making content around games and so much of the way I engage with games is a little more work-like compared to how it used to be that I need like another outlet that is not work-like at all. And I started following the Yankees after the All-Star break and they went on a 13-game winning streak. So it got really fun to watch. And after that 13-game winning streak, they lost like 9 out of 10 games. It was fucking brutal and reminded me my following sports can kind of suck at times. Anyway, I, I picked up a copy of Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Um, you know, the Roman emperor, sort of stoic philosopher of sorts. And there's something relevant to this whole baseball Yankees thing that I'm, I'm trying to keep in heart, and I think is very wise and true. Uh, the first book of the Meditations is him kind of thanking people he's learned from, Marcus Aurelius. Here's the quote. First book, second passage. Of him that brought me up, he's referring to his father, of him that brought me up, not to be fondly addicted to either of the two great factions of coursers in the circus, called Prasini and Venetti, nor in the amphitheater par partially to favor any of the gladiators or fencers, either the parm parmillari or the secutores. So... Aurelius is suggesting that it would be wise to not get overly attached to sporting events and their outcomes. And uh, based on the playoff run that the New York Yankees are, 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 are trying to make as of September 20th, I can kind of understand why he would say this. I'm not sure if it's adding more joy to my life or stress to my life at this point. If you're a Yankees fan, shout at me. Let me know what you think. Or if you're a Red Sox fan, uh, uh, throw me some shade. Because fuck the Red Sox. But anyway, that's it for news. All right. Let's talk some notes. Like I mentioned earlier on, um, last week I just basically took the week off because... My podcast guest canceled on me, and I was feeling like shit. I was sick, so I was like, okay, just 
take the time off. And, you know, I'm always strangely grateful for getting sick when, as long as it's not like life threatening or, you know, finances destroying, because it kind of gives me an excuse to take a beat and reflect a little more, stop trying to produce, stop trying to show up and just kind of um, be for a little while. And one of the, th the, real the realizations I think that I've made um, with regards to my presence online is to really double down and focus on right now, for right now, at least this podcasting content. I think this for me is the strongest signal of meaning that I can engage with when it comes to games and online worlds and community and hanging out with y'all. I love this shit. Um, and I've dabbled in the idea of streaming myself playing games. I've had fun with it at times. A lot of y'all will have seen me stream Planetside in the past, but I've kind of decided that for right now, I'm probably not going to be streaming myself playing games. Um, just because it's not a direct enough conduit of meaning for what I'm trying to chase. Um, in multiplayer games, um, I prefer to really engage with people who I'm hanging out with, and if you're kind of performing on stream, it dilutes that or prevents it sometimes. And... Um, if you're playing a single-player game, which I don't actually, I can't actually comment on because I don't actually play single-player games ever. I have this like disorder, or I'm opposed to single-player games. Maybe y'all can tell me why this is. Any theories? But I, I have this sort of concern: the more that I monitor and engage with people who are primarily concerned with streaming themselves playing video games, that the strongest signal that gets emitted from that kind of work and that kind of undertaking is game good, game bad. It feels like it's almost like streaming games is more about games than it is about people. And people is what I think I fundamentally care about. What else? Um, oh! Because I took some downtime last week, uh, I got uh, started getting the Deeg's Thoughts episode spun up as a podcast. So if you go to Spotify right now and search for Deeg Thoughts, you will find the Deeg Thoughts podcast where this episode will materialize. I also got the last four up um, for the last month or so, and I'm working on getting the entire back catalog of Deeg Thoughts up on Spotify. And also, we'll also do iTunes and some other places too. Um, if there's anywhere that you consume podcasts and it's not spotify or itunes i'd love to hear from you drop me a comment or a note because um uh i need to know where y'all are so i can get the the podcast kind of uh, uh pushed out to all the places all the things saturate the scene coming up what is coming up for deeg well <laughs> last week like i mentioned mclean deemer composer for games like Guild Wars 2, Crucible, and someone who worked on Rock Band, canceled on me for the third time. And he said that he wants to reschedule in October. I'm hopeful that will happen. Um, but at this point, I'm not counting on it. I hope that does. I like McLean a lot. Very talented person. And he's produced some of the, my, my favorite music in gaming. But what you can look forward to for sure is a revisitation of um, my connection with Melderon. Melderon, for those of you who don't know, is a WoW classic creator. I should say was a WoW classic creator. 
I talked to him and his brother Def Camp about a year ago on the podcast, um, all about World of Warcraft Classic and their particular story. Um, but this time I'm going to be talking just with Melderon, who's kind of decided to, um, he's going to keep playing WoW in the background. He's, he's turning off the content drip. He's not going to be making content anymore. He's moving on in his life to doing other things. And I love talking to people who are who have found ways to move on from gaming and find different meaning in their lives. Um, he's a, like a medical researcher or something. Like he's just like he's a really smart dude, and I'm looking forward to that conversation. Uh, Melderon, that'll be on this Friday, happening at eight o'clock p.m. Eastern time, five o'clock p.m. Pacific time, U.S. on Twitch. Speaking of Twitch, uh, the last thing that's kind of coming up is um, that I'm I'm pretty much decided at this point to move my live stream to relocate it from Twitch to YouTube. Um, I got a lot of positive signal from y'all last time that you that this idea would be okay, and you even saw some upside to it. And I think there's pretty decent upside to it long term as well too. Um, I am going to miss the kind of community aspect of Twitch, but to be honest, I don't. I don't know if the community aspect of Twitch is particularly applicable to me. Um, again, if you uh, have a strong opinion about this, I'd love to hear it. But at this point, it's just a matter of time. On the site here, a, a really good reason not to go to YouTube. Um, there is definitely a higher barrier to entry when it comes to getting set up to stream there. But um, I think it'll be really worth it in the long term. And look for me to start doing some test streams on YouTube in the next, uh, before, the end of the, before the end of September. I'm going to commit to that. I'm going to try it before the end of September. And uh, we'll see how soon we can get that locked in. Yeah. And check out the website, geekthoughts.com. My, my wife helped me with this. She's a badass. <laughs> All right. So, normally I send off my content with a sh with a self shill and uh i'll do that too you know type in deeg thoughts in social media and find me youtube twitch twitter um i have a patreon if you want to support me that way and uh where i've made some changes recently check that out if you're curious um that's just how you locate me but um i want to do a kind of send-off for the deeg thoughts podcast and um, I'm going to tell a little story here. Um, so I mentioned I was playing Valheim, right? Um, awesome game. You see here on the screen. That's not me. I just pulled it off the internet somewhere. But my excuse to getting back into Valheim was they had a new update called Hearth and Home that I wanted to check out. And of course, I've, I've been playing with my buddy. Um, last time I played Valheim, uh, when it first came out, it's kind of funny. It's a game that is kind of governed by progressing technology in order to move through the different biomes. At the end of each biome, you kind of fight a boss, which gives you a new technology that allows you to advance through the game, the randomly generated world. And I got stuck in biome number two last time because rather than continuing to play, I just wanted to build shit. And you don't actually even have access to most of the cool stuff you can build with by biome two, but I was just obsessed. And... uh Anyway, I, I came back and started playing with my buddy. And my buddy is, um, he doesn't really care about building shit. He wants to progress, baby. He is like, I don't give a shit about whether this corner is tidy. I don't give a shit about whether these, whether the storage is labeled. 
I don't give a shit if these walls line up. I just want my loot. I want to move on. And uh, boy, um, it's interesting playing with someone like that. Um, but uh, I was starting to have not such a great time because I was feeling rushed. Like I wanted to make these cool structures and he wanted to kind of move on. But I wanted to play together. That's kind of the fun. And uh, I, I didn't do this very well last time. Now, I think it's part of what, what resulted in us not playing the game long term. But between the last time I played Valheim and this time, I took a personality test. And this personality test suggested to me that on the personality trait of orderliness, I'm more orderly than 80% of the population. 80 out of 100. And it said this to describe me in the way I scored. Highly orderly people tend to be disturbed and disgusted by mess and chaos. They keep everything tidy and organized. Now, I kind of sensed this about myself before, but I didn't know it. I didn't name it. But this time playing Valheim, starting to feel like I was getting stuck, I asked myself, why am I getting stuck? Oh, my desire to have a huge, tidy, and orderly structure and house is getting in the way of progressing. So let me take this kind of instinct for ordering everything and cleaning up messes and find a better way to apply it that's more congenial to playing with my friend. So I refocused away from building these crazy-ass megastructures towards using my instinct to organize our items and make some basic structures we needed in order just to kind of play the game. And as a result, I started having a lot more fun. And... um getting the chance to actually play together rather than having my friend go out and do all the progression while I was back in the base building. This was an example of me using my awareness about myself to overcome an instinctual behavior that was grinding me down. And it was way more fun and way less frustrating. Anyway, I wanted to share that story as kind of like a punctuation on this whole thing. Um, Hopefully, every single week, I'll be able to find a little story where, where me or someone I know um, kind of leaned into an awareness in order to overcome something that is, was kind of troubling them. Um, if you have a story about um, using some level of inner awareness to overcome some kind of instinctual behavior, especially something that's changed for you over time for the better, I'd love if you'd share it in the comments or just shoot me a note on Discord. Um, I love hearing this stuff. I think that these human stories... Are really central to us connecting and uh, progressing, um, finding meaning in this crazy game of life. And on that note, that's a Deep Thoughts podcast. I'll be back here next week, starting at around 9 p.m. Eastern time, plus or minus three hours. I'm so sorry. Punctuality is my worst trait. But I'll be there at some point. Monitor social media, Discord, all the places to stay up to date. Thanks, y'all, and have an awesome night. Yeah!